Amen. So the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the last city standing. The refugees had poured into the, into the walls of the city. And Hezekiah, the Davidic king, was, was standing strong, refusing to surrender to the Assyrians and praying that the Lord would save them. And the Lord does save them. He comes out and he kills 185,000 Assyrians in the night. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adrimelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So Sennacherib, the great king of kings who boasted against uh, God, against Yahweh, uh, was uh, sent home, sent packing, and was assassinated by his own sons while he was at church um, in his pagan worship service. And, so, and then he went off to hell. And so that's the end of him. And honestly, the, Ninev- the, the Ninevite kingdom never really picked up much steam after that. They, they, they did um, gain in wealth and they gained in prosperity. But eventually in 612 B.C., 612, Nineveh is wiped out and conquered by the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians basically become the global, global you know, hegemon and the Assyrian peoples are culturally assimilated into the Babylonian empire. Okay, so that's the Assyrians. They're gone. But now I want to look at verse 36, and because I think this is going to be relevant for a few of us in here um, and interesting for the rest of us. But look at verse uh, 36. It says, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Who is this angel of the Lord? That's what I'd like to talk about for a little bit this evening. Um, and so just to start the word angel, what, who knows what the word angel means? It means messenger. It just means messenger. When we hear the word angel, we think of, you know, giant, tall, blonde with big wings, whatever's in your cultural, you know, picture mind, your little naked babies floating around. What do, how in, uh, in Iran, how do people picture angels in your mind? If you picture an angel, what's it look like? Not like what I said. I know. I was so I'm I'm curious to know what is it pictured? A little girl with with little fairy wings. All right. You see, that's the danger and the power of art. That's why you got to be careful with Jesus art because it'll put stuff in your head that's not true about Jesus. He's not effeminate and hippie and squirrely and all the other things that they make him try to look like. You know, so you got to be careful with art. It puts stuff in your head. But angels in the Bible are described in ways that you wouldn't want them on your bathroom wallpaper. They're, you know, they're very fierce and, 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 and scary and intimidating. And every time one appears, the person like passes out or tries to worship them. Um, and so but the word angel is not necessarily a cherub or a seraph or a heavenly creature. Those are the different names for angels in the bible when you see the word angel it's not necessarily one of those beings okay um pastors are called angels um which is ironic i think but pastors are called angels in the book of revelation because pastors are messengers all right they're sent by god Um, jesus is called the angel of the covenant so an angel is not necessarily a cherub or a seraph 
or a heavenly creature. It's just a messenger, literally messenger, okay, with a message. All right, and this is the messenger of the Lord or the, mess- the message bearer sent from Yahweh, the Lord, right there in verse 36, okay? Now, I want you to see, I want to turn to a few things with that said, and uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 16, verse 10. I want to introduce you to this angel of the Lord character. It's all over the Bible, all over the Old Testament, this angel of the Lord, angel of the Lord. And, uh, and does everybody have their Bibles? Genesis 16, verse 10. And you kind of, if, if you're not going to look it up in your Bible, you have to listen very carefully because this is a very um, nuanced point here that I want you to see. Genesis 16, 10. Y'all found it? Stephen, you found it? Or you want to read it for us? All right, so in Genesis chapter 16, the angel of the Lord is speaking to Hagar. And the angel of the Lord says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, does that sound like something an angel can do or goes around saying in the Bible? Who normally, who does that and who normally makes that promise in the Bible? That is one of the covenantal promises that God makes. So we have this angel of the Lord appearing to Hagar and speaking as though he is God. But it's not God, right? It's not the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. So it's different than the Lord, yet it speaks as though it is the Lord, this angel of the Lord. Everyone see that? Let's try. You're going to see the pattern here. It's going to emerge. Genesis chapter 22 Let's go to Genesis 22, verse 15. Genesis 22, verse 15. And stick with me. This is very important, especially for some of you. I think you're, this is going to be helpful for you. All right, Genesis 22, verse 15. Everybody found that? All right, Aaron, you want to read it for us? Read 15 through 17. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. There you go. So once again, we see who called to Abraham in verse 15. Aaron? The angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. So who is talking to Abraham, promising him to multiply his seed and to save him and all of his covenant children? Is it the angel of the Lord or is it the Lord? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so does everyone see grammatically the difficulty there? All right. You wouldn't say the son of Brandon said something and then, then say Brandon said something. It would be like, that makes no sense. But we have here, and but we do see here, we see the angel of the Lord. The messenger of the Lord says something, and then it says, but the Lord said it. And the promise that it says is exactly the same promise that God promised, Yahweh promised, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the covenantal promise. It's the promise of redemption. All right, look at Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. Genesis 32, 24. And we're not going to go through the whole Bible. We could. We could. We could go all the way through the entire Old Testament doing this. But I'm just going to show you some key ones. Genesis 32, 24. All right. Yes. Could it not be this, 
Well, he's he is. Yeah, he said, I have sworn, I have sworn. Well, I mean, I suppose it would be weird. Like it would be like if I were if I started talking like God, like if I mean, he, it could be. Let's look at another one. Genesis thirty two, twenty four. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. You all know the story. Jacob wrestles. Right. So who's he wrestling with in verse twenty four? A man. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God. All right. Now we see here, and I don't think I have all the verses, but um, angel of the Lord is in this particular chapter as well. We got an angel of the Lord. We got God and is a man and is a man. All right. Exodus chapter three. And we're not going to look this one up, but in Exodus chapter three, God speaks to uh, Moses in the burning bush. And once again, it's the angel of the Lord and it's God and it's holy ground. Exodus thirteen twenty one. Let's look at this one. Real quick, Exodus thirteen twenty one, and someone else get Exodus fourteen nineteen. Jude, can you get Exodus fourteen nineteen? And who's got Exodus thirteen twenty one? Go ahead, Aaron. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So Yahweh, the Lord, is manifesting Himself as a pillar of fire in a cloud, and He's going. Okay. Now Exodus fourteen nineteen, Jude. The angel of God. So now we got the angel of God, angel of the Lord. Yeah, I know, but angel of God. So now we got the angel of God moving, and when the angel of God goes behind, so does the pillar, the, the cloud goes behind too. You see that? So this angel of God, this angel of the Lord, and God, and the cloud, they all operate in exactly the same way. It's all operating in the same way. All right. Joshua, in the beginning of the book of Joshua, a man appears to him and it's the captain of the Lord's army. And what does Joshua, the devout Jew Christian do? He worships him and the and the captain of the Lord's army receives the worship and says this is holy ground. The same exact expression for when God appeared at the burning bush. So it's the captain of the Lord's army and it's also God and it's a man. And Joseph, Joshua is worshiping him. Now, see that? Now, what doctrines are being communicated in narrative form here? The Trinity and the Incarnation, right? The Trinity and the Incarnation in its, pre, in its pre-incarnation role, in its Old Testament um, narrative uh, revelation of the, of the nature of God. God is a complicated being, right? He's not... He's not a, a, an amoeba, right? He's much more complicated, and he's more complicated than we are as well. And, and, and in some sense, he has a plurality, and he has a singularity. He has a unity and a diversity, a unity and a diversity, which is, by the way, why our world has both unity and diversity in all the things we do. You have one, the two in marriage, the two become one, 
You have the diversity and the unity. You see it in all of creation. You see, you can see if you learn the Trinity through the way that the world is made. You can see it. All right. Um, you can see this angel of the Lord again in the book of Judges appear to Gideon when he is threshing wheat in the wine press. You can see the angel of the Lord appear to Zechariah and announce the birth of John the Baptist. You can see an, this great, powerful, supreme angel binding the devil and putting a chain around him and throwing him into a pit in the book of Revelation. You see all of this. Amen. So do y'all see, I wanted to show you, especially those of you who are new to the doctrine of the Trinity, that this is not something that was just fabricated by um, religious scholars in the 400 AD, okay? The doctrine of the Trinity is in the very first verse of the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look up that word God, it's plural, all right? But it's translated singular, and, the, and it's always been translated singular, and the Jews thought of it as singular, and it's a singular word with, well, actually, the word is plural, but the verb is singular. One of those things, all right? In the beginning, God created. The created is singular, and the God is plural. So it's like, ah, what do you do here? All right, all the way throughout the whole Bible, you got unity and diversity in the very complicated being of God. Now, does that make rational sense to us? No. But we do not walk by reason. We're not ancient Greeks, right? We're not rationalists. We walk by the revelation of Scripture. And, and, and we use our brains, we use our brains, our reason, to read revelation of Scripture and make as much sense out of it as we can. And when you read the actual words of the Bible, you see time and time again in various ways, in narrative form and in doctrinal form under the Apostle Paul, you see unity and diversity in the Godhead. Amen? All right. Now, why does God do things like this? Why does he make it complicated? Um, well, I suppose it, it's probably not easy to understand God. You know, you, can't even, you don't even understand your wife, right? Much less God, right? It takes a long time. It takes a long time to get to know a person, right? I mean, how many of, do we in here, do we really know each other? Some of us know each other more than others, but it takes a long time to get to know someone, to really know them, to know how they would respond, to know what they would say, to know what would make them anxious or afraid or angry or happy, right? To know how to tweak them, to know how to tease them. You know, like you take, you got to be friends with someone over a period of time to know what gets under their skin, what's too, what's too far, you know what I'm saying? What's off limits? You know, it takes a long time to get to know someone, right? To get to know what they're like. And, and how, how do you get to know them? What's the method? Huh? Word, the word. If, they're, if they want you to get to know them, a lot of people, I'm, there's been people, not as much now, but still some, that have been in our church for 15 years, and nobody knows them, Right? Nobody, know, nobody has a clue about anything about them because they don't want to be known. Like they don't, they don't share. They don't speak. They're not vulnerable. They don't, even, they don't even put in the time, right? But it, with time and proximity, you have, to, you, have to, you have to descend to the person, basically. You have to go to them, and then you have to express word to them that comes from your heart so that they can know you to some extent 
right? Plus they can see you and they can hear you. So there you have those connections there. And after a long period of time, you can get to know someone and they can know you. And that's nice, right? It's good. Um, and that's when the Bible says to dwell with your wife with understanding. I don't, that word is, it makes it a little bit harder. It's dwell with your, get to know your wife so that you can be wise, so that you can be a friend, so that you can actually make a difference and help. You know what I mean? But it takes a long time. You've got to get to know them. And, uh, and hopefully they're, they're speaking and communicating in a way that's transparent, right? To let you get to know them, right? So we've talked about this before. I don't want to redo it all over again. But what is the, the least transparent, the least get-to-know-me type of communication? Y'all remember this from class? Chit-chat, chit-chat. Even chit-chat is even is more advanced than, the, than this. It's just cordiality or greetings. <laughs> Do what? <laughs> you know, um, gestures in the, on the highway, right? It, it's like it's what you do at the gas station with someone. You're like, I need 20 bucks on pump four, you know, and they're like, there you go. You say, thank you. Thank you. You know what I mean? Just cordiality, right? But then you got cliches, just cliches. You know, eventually you start telling stories, right? Then you start sharing hopes and dreams. Then you, you know, after a period of time, you get to know that person. That's, you know, in the dating process, you need a long period of time to get to know them before you get uh, eros love stirred up and hot and heavy because then you might realize later when you do get to know them that, dang, they're terrible, right? <laughs> it's too late. It's too late at that point. So there's a lot to know. You got to get to know them. Well, but, but I'm saying all this to say, but how do we get to know God? How do we get to know God? We cannot know God. Right? We don't even want to know God. The Bible says that no one seeks after God. And, that, and, and the Bible says that no one has ever seen God except him who has, the, who has come from him, Jesus. Right? The only way we can know, any, know God, like how would God respond to this? What does God think about this? What does he like? What does he hate? Right? What, how does this make him feel? What does he want me to do? To get to know him, he has to... He has to come down and, and he has to reveal himself. And um, does he have any obligation? No, he has no obligation. I mean, imagine uh, the, I'm trying to think of someone who's powerful that you might actually like to know. Um, huh? Yeah, let's say Jeff Landry. He's our governor, right? <coughs> um, if you were going to get to know Jeff Landry, who would have to initiate it? He would have to initiate it. If you got to go to his office for some reason, you would not expect him to, to really open up to you. You understand what I mean? You would, you would be very surprised if he did open up to you. You know what I'm saying? Right? Um, but imagine if Jeff, Land, Jeff Landry, you went into his office and he's like, hey, shut that door, shut that door. Man, you know, I've been going through this thing lately. You know, what do you think about it? And, he, and he, you started talking. He's like, all right. He's like, you, I mean, you, you think you'd like to jump in on this and get involved with this? And like, you could be my right hand man. We could do this together. I mean, you're like, whoa, now you're in. Now you get to know what he's like up to, what his purposes are, his missions for his his kingdom, I know, his his uh, his regime, you know, 
And then what if he told you, like, you could see how cool it is that God came to us and not only lets us know how he feels about everything. He's like, this is how I feel about everything. I hate this. I love this. This is what makes me happy. This is what makes me sad. This is how much I love you. You know what I'm saying? And this is what I'm up to. You want to be involved? You want to be involved? You can be involved with that. It's pretty cool to get invited to know God, to know him. But how and how do we know him? Word. It's word. It's the same way you get to know your wife. Ultimately, word. Now, it's it's more word than just we can also see. We can't see him yet. We will one day. And then we will really know him. We will know him as we are known, the Bible says. We will really get to know God when we can, when we can be in his presence unmediated. You know what I'm saying? It will be not only word, but it will be presence. It will be sight. And I think that's probably an analogy of some sort. Okay? That's pretty cool. We'll get to, we'll really know him. We'll really know him. But all of that to say, what is the ultimate word that he sends to earth to reveal himself. Jesus is the word. Okay, so that's John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. Why is he called the word? Because he is the way that God tells man what he's like. So that man can get to know him. Because we don't know him because of sin. Sin cut us off in the garden. So we don't know him and we can't know him. He has to let us know. So he sends prophets with words. But then he sends the ultimate word. Now, Jesus isn't a letter or a word. It's, it's an analogy. Of, of, so it's a title. You understand what I'm saying? So he's like the ultimate letter. He's the ultimate God opening up and saying, this is what I am. This is what I'm like. You want to be a part of this, this mission? You want to get on board with this? You want to get to know me? Know him. See what I'm saying? And I, and I think, I don't know this for certain, but I think that is a little bit why He's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, right? And then later in the New Testament, he's the word. Because the, an angel, it's like he brings a message of God. So he's kind of, I think there's a similarity between the messenger, angel of the Lord, messenger of the Lord, and the word coming from God to man to communicate and to act so that God can, uh, so that we can get to know him. Pretty cool, right? And then there's another thing. There's another thing that the Bible says because um, it, take, it takes time to get to know a person and it takes a lot of time to get to know God. But if, it, if you got to know someone really fast, okay, how do you think that would be? Like you, you just, you knew them perfectly right away. It would take a little bit of the mystery out of, of life, really. In some sense, I think that would, it's something to, to think about. But for some reason, God wants us to get to know him gradually. And he wants us to want to get to know him. He wants us to work for it. It's hard to get, kind of, for lack of a better phrase. It, like most ladies, right? You've got to work for it. If they sense that you don't really want to know them and understand them, and know how they tick, and what they like, and what they hate, and all that thing. If they sense you're not really interested, then they're going to, they, they play hard to get. They put up a wall, right? You understand what I'm doing? They, sh- they, shut, they just shut that down, right? But, if, but there is a little bit of cat and mouse 
in the relationship when you want to get to know me. I mean, guys, have you ever had a conversation with a wife where you're like, why don't you just say what you want? Just say it. You know what I'm saying? Just say the words. What do you want? And they just absolutely refuse. They don't know. <laughs> they may not know, but it's in there, though. I promise you, it's in there. It's just, 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 I'm just, I'm kind of just riffing here, but there's just some mysterious things that I think are very fascinating between knowing God and knowing another person. I think it's very cool. And uh, listen to Proverbs 25 too. It is the glory of God to conceal things. See, God conceals things. Like, ah, just let us know all we need to know right now. No, 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 no. Right? He conceals it. And then it says, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God wants you to be curious. He wants you to dig. He wants you to go to Genesis and look up, oh, that's a singular noun and a plural verb. He wants you to dig. He wants you to get to know him. And that takes a lot of time. But if if you're not interested in knowing him, what is he going to do? He hides. He hides himself from the proud. That's what the Bible says. He resists the proud. He hides himself from the proud. And, and, And so... I think that's that's really cool, really important. And I will say this, um, just knowing God, really knowing him is the is the purpose of life. It's the most important thing. It's the most important thing. And it doesn't matter how smart you are or how rich you are or how successful you are. If you know God, you win. You know, that's all you really need. Right. That's all you really need. And the Bible says that he knows you. You're you're an open book to God. Um, But for us to get to know him. And, and for him to have a relationship with us is a really cool thing. And if you want to know God and you don't, you're not sure if you know him, the key is to go to Jesus. Jesus is how to get to know him. Amen? All right, let's move on to uh, Hezekiah. Where are we at? How much time we got? A little bit? All right, we're good. All right, Hezekiah, oh, chapter 38, chapter 38. I bet we don't even get to read any of it. We were supposed to do 38 today, weren't we? All right, so, but you can see right there in Isaiah 38, verse 1, in those days, Hezekiah. So there he is. That's who I want to talk about today. Um, this week, I would suggest to you, uh, because this class is, we're covering the book of Isaiah in this class. Um, but um, in the book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings is the story of Hezekiah. And it is a really cool uh, story. It's a very cool story. You should read it sometime. He was the most holy, most righteous, most godly king that Israel ever had. Um, and in my opinion, even more like faithful and righteous than David. He, like, he didn't have a Uriah Bathsheba moment. Yes? Were you going to say something, Tori? Okay. <laughs> we'll see. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah. yeah. Jesus killed 185,000 people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That I thought about uh, making that point, but I figured everybody that comes on Wednesday nights knows that Jesus kills people already. But I mean, maybe some of you who are visitors need to know Jesus is. He kills people, right? Okay. He kills a lot of people. The Bible even says that he kills the offspring of the wicked. So. I don't know if that resonates with the Jesus you know, but Jesus kills a lot of people. Yeah, they do deserve it. Yeah, he's not just arbitrary, right? All right, good. All right, moving on. Thank you, Tori, for that. All right. <laughs> oh, one more thing. Sorry. It's not I don't even know why I have an outline. It's not about the Jesus 
except for um, uh, Jesus. That have seen Jesus. And I've heard that uh, put forth as evidence that all these angels of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's ev- that is evidence that that was Jesus because all those people that saw God or the angels of the Lord. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Saw Jesus because no one's ever seen God. Well, and the angel of the Lord is a manifestation, uh, a, the- a theophany or a Christophany of God. Um, so, yeah. So they saw a manifestation of God, a mediated display, but no one has ever seen an unmediated vision of God, like really know him. So, all right. Um, Hezekiah, very faithful king. His dad was Ahaz. He was evil. His son was Manasseh. He was evil, but Hezekiah was righteous. And, and though we aren't going to read it, read the stories in Chronicles and in Kings later because you have one of the greatest revivals that breaks out in all of Israel. And so I wanted to just go through with the remaining time. I wanted to go through the marks of revival. Right. What does it look like when there is a revival in a nation? Right. Because Hezekiah, he leads a major revival and you can look at the revival of Israel in that time. And um, and you can, you know, pick out some of the signs of a of a revival in a nation. And does our nation need revival? Yes, that's really our only hope. It's revival or bust, as they say. Um, <coughs> you could see elections aren't going to really, you know, they're not going to save the day. Even if we did have good elections, they're not going to save the day. I promise. Uh, we just had the Iowa caucus, the lowest turnout of Christians like in the history of all Iowa caucuses ever. So even Christians aren't even voting anymore. So it's getting bad. Elections aren't going to save us. We need some sort of, we need a miracle. We need a revival. But this is what it would look like if there was a revival. And even if our nation doesn't get a revival, maybe our church could have a revival. Maybe our church is having a revival. All right, so here we go. First of all is renewed sacrifices. When there is a revival, Hezekiah, he, he renews the sacrifices. They get back into um, doing what they're supposed to do with the sacrifices, which means... Focus on Jesus. It's a focus on Jesus and on Jesus' cross. Anytime there's a revival, the Spirit of God renews faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Um, <clears throat> also, you see under, under Hezekiah, you see uh, new songs being written and new songs being sung. Um, we're, we're not going to get to it today, but in chapter 38, Hezekiah talks about uh, people singing his songs that he wrote in the, uh, in the worship at the, uh, at the tabernacle and at the temple. So you have renewed jubilant singing. When people are revived in their hearts, guess what they want to do? They want to sing. That's right. They want to sing. When you, when you see a stone-faced um, uh, person with RBF in church on Sunday morning not singing and everybody else is singing, I can, you, can be, you can rest assured nine out of ten times that person is in sin, not a Christian, or their Christianity is cold as ice, and they need to be revived. And if they get revived, they're going to start singing. Now, there is one possibility that no one ever told them how important and how good and awesome it is. And, and so they didn't know. Right. So if that's you, I just told you. So Sunday morning, <laughs> Sunday morning, it's time to get to singing. Right. <clears throat> Revivals produce new songs all over the Reformation. 
Calvin wrote songs. Luther wrote songs. New songs are springing up all, all throughout the Revelation, all throughout the Reformation. You also see renewed covenant vows. So people are start, they start keeping their business contracts. They keep their word. They stay faithful in their marriages. If you have a revival breaking out in a church, one thing you're not going to have running rampant throughout the church is a bunch of divorces and a bunch of people cheating on each other. You're going to have faithful marriages, faithful to their covenant, and they're going to be faithful to their church obligations and their church covenant. Uh, church hopping goes away when there's revival. People who are revived... They don't look down the street with covetousness over somebody else's shepherd and how green those pastures are. They are loyal to their pastors and they are loyal to the people in their churches and they don't church hop. Church hoppers aren't revived in their hearts unless you're hopping from an apostate church. That's okay. But if you're just hopping because you're constantly discontent and you want, to, and you want things your way right away is because you are not revived in your heart. Revival brings covenantal faithfulness. Amen. Amen. And speaking of keeping your word, um, it's, it's not just the things you write down. It's also the things you say. Revived people pay their bills. They pay what is owed. What does Jesus say in the, um, in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, owe no man anything. What he means is if you said you're going to pay, then you need to pay. And if you can't pay, you need to talk to that person and ask for some employment. And you can be their bond servant for a little while. But you need, a, you need to pay. Right? Um, this week, somebody told me they, they want to buy my trailer. Well, I'm going to buy it. I got it. Just hold it for me. Just hold it for me. And then every day they strung me along. And finally, they're like, oh, I'm going to have to pass. Like, I've been holding it for you for four days. And, and you said you were going to pay this money. Like, you really, you really did me wrong. You broke your word. And, like, and I went through quite a bit of trouble to do this for you. And then, you're just, and then they're just like, I'm going to pass. I don't know the person, but... You've got to pay your bills and, and let your yes be yes and your no be no. Amen? All right. Another thing you see in revival. Uh, we're talking about Hezekiah's revival, by the way, Jeremy. Another thing you see in revival is an awareness of the presence of God. People just, they kind of have a sense that God is doing stuff. You know what I'm saying? That God's hand is involved. Prayers are being answered. People are being saved. Right? New people are being saved. All of that sort of stuff, you kind of you get to see that in revival. And so y'all be praying. I, th- I think God answers, God's been answering some prayers lately in my life and in our church's life. But y'all, we need to be praying for some stuff. And y'all keep praying that God would save my neighbor, Chris. Um, so good things are happening with that. He is still in prison or in jail. But he's right where he needs to be, trust me. He's, good. he's in a good place for now. He's in jail. But he told, he told his wife, he's like, I need to... I need to start going to Pastor Brandon's church. That's what he said to her. Isn't that weird? He doesn't remember when he and I wrestled for his rifle. I'm glad that he doesn't remember. For the new people, my neighbor tried to kill himself, and I had to wrestle him for his rifle, and it was a scary moment. And, uh, but I got the rifle. Huh? Oh, you didn't even hear this? Well, he shot his brother, and then I had a standoff with the SWAT, and so now he's in jail. Yeah. This is my nice neighbor. This is the good neighbor. This is the one way in the back, the nice one that r- runs the excavator. Great guy. So he told his wife, he's like, I'm going to get out. I'm going to do the right thing. You know how sometimes you got, you know, what do they call that? Prison religion or something like that. So, but, but I wouldn't be surprised because I've been praying that God would save him. And I've been laying out quite a few arguments about how, how cool it would be. Right? 
So anyway, y'all be praying for him. Another thing you see in revival is you see the tearing down and the burning down of all the pagan statues. Every revival tears down statues. Every reformation tears down statues. It just depends on who's reformation. So if it's a Marxist reformation, they're going to tear down statues. If it's a Christian reformation, you're going to tear down statues. And Hezekiah tore down all the statues, all the little Satan shrines. They beheaded all of them. And, um, and they did it, right? They did it, but they did it with the government. The government actually shut it all down. Hezekiah and the whole uh, uh, national government said, no more worshiping Satan, no more sacrificing your babies in the fires. Um, we're, we're done with all of that stuff. The oppressive, tyrannical uh, government of, of apostate Israel began to repent, turn back to Christ, and stop oppressing the people, and instead cleaned up and, and got rid of all the pagan shrines. Um, you see that in revival as well. Revival, real revival, is not just something that happens in a church on a Sunday morning, and it's certainly not something that just happens in a tent somewhere in a field, um, if you know the old-fashioned revival tent meetings. Revival affects the family, the church, and the government, the whole nation. Revival affects the laws of the land. It affects uh, massive amounts of people. Another thing you see in the uh, Hezekiah revivals is you see victory over God's enemies. So they start um, winning the cultural battles and the political battles. And they're not winning with pagan means or with humanistic means. They're winning by God miraculously moving. So they're not winning because they're going around murdering abortion doctors and other things that God does not approve of. They win in the legitimate way, um, as God says. Don't put your faith in chariots or in horses. Don't put your faith in Egypt. If, if the church will repent of its sins, the church will see victories in society and it will be victories done through the means that god has ordained right um, <clears throat> another thing you see in the hezekiah revival is that the church returns to tithing um, in when people are revived in their hearts they tithe why do they tithe because they want to obey god because they believe god's law is the right way to live and the happy way to live and so they read in god's law it says to tithe so they start tithing and by the way what is tithing it's 10% of your profits. That's right. It's 10% of your profits. You give them to God. And uh, it is a token that it all belongs to him. Um, it is a tribute because he is your Lord and your, and your king. And it is also the way that he has ordained that the church be resourced. How is the state to be resourced? Taxes. And according to 1 Samuel chapter 8, they should not be more than 10%. They should be less than 10%. Um, and uh, the church is resourced by tithes. And uh, the family is resourced how? By the father working. That's right, primarily. Um, good. And if the church tithes, um, because they're being repentant and they're being revived, and the oppression will diminish, which means taxes will diminish. It really is, you, and I know I'm asserting a lot of things for those of you who are new to Christ Church and you've never heard these things. I'm asserting a lot of this. I'm not really giving, laying out the entire argument. But any, any point that I make, if you're like, hey, I want to know more about that, I have an entire class on just this one point. So I'd be happy to shoot you the class. But just it's basically when the church tithes, taxes are low. When the church refuses to tithe, taxes get high. You're going to pay one way or the other. You can either pay the Lord in obedience or you, he can have oppressive governments spank your little bottom until you learn to obey. That's right. And you know, you can clearly tell where we are in our nation. Yeah. 
because the church, because 50%, 40, 50%, I think is the tax rate for most people, where 50% were half-time slaves. And that's because the church is apostate, because the church is apostate. And, I mean, if you're not sure about whether or not the church is apostate, talk to me afterward. I can make, I can make a very good argument for you. It's bad out there, right? If that, yeah, if that. But I, but I mean, their worship services, they're worshiping uh, other gods in the worship services. Like, I mean, they're having a football Sunday. What is football Sunday? You're supposed to be worshiping the Lord in the, on the Lord's Day in consecrated worship. And instead, they're celebrating football stars and football championships from town. I'm like, what in the world are y'all even doing? Like, that's not church. You're not supposed to be worshiping other things. Anyway, I digress. All right. <clears throat> Another thing you see is national prosperity. You see the kings and the political leaders uh, um, claiming the name of Christ and preaching the gospel. Hezekiah did that. He, he preached the gospel all the time. And Hezekiah published um, books, and he sent pamphlets all over the kingdom. And he revived, uh, the revival revives an interest in reading. You see, anytime a soul is revived, literacy increases. You can see that. A church that's going through revival uh, is filled with people who want to read more. And, 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 uh, and everywhere Christianity spreads, literacy spreads. And grammar schools and reading schools pop up because we're a people of the book. And, and we want to get to know God, so we want to get to know the word of God, so we want to know how to read. So anytime you see revival breaking out, you see uh, a revived interest in reading um, solid books, solid books. And anytime you see an anti-Christ, anti-dominion, secular uh, revival, you see a diminishing of literacy and you see a banning of the Bible. Right. As in the in the Middle Ages, the banning of Bibles, not allowing people to read the Bible in their own language and in our government, our government system, in our government schools, though, there's only one book banned, the Bible. Right. Um, Another thing, just a couple more. He repaired the temple and had all the deferred maintenance taken care of, which um, points to the fact that people want to renew worship. He made all the priests. They had to repent and they had to follow the laws and get back to being consecrated before they would do their sacrifices. A renewal of an interest in worship. People start going to church. They show up on time. They sing. They want to be engaged in worship. They want their heart to be in worship. And they want to be doing the stuff in worship that God says you're supposed to do. Not all kind of crazy nonsense. Right. So you see that in revival as well. Amen. All right, those are all the um, evidences of revival. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. We'll, we'll end with this. This is the, the, the theme verse for Hezekiah's revival. It's in Second Chronicles 7, 14. You've all heard it before. If my people who are called by my name, who's that? Christians, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land, which means heal their land of economic disasters, uh, famine, pestilence, tyrannical oppression, all of those things. What is the key to prosperity and to national revival and to freedom why does America have the freedom and the prosperity that we do have? Because people a long time ago, Christians a long time ago, repented and followed Jesus. We're just living off of the residue. That residue ain't going to last much longer. Okay? Makes sense? So if, uh, if the church would repent, um, 
we could see a re- we could see revivals the same way that they did in Hezekiah's day. If you want to know more about revivals, read the, the first and second chronicles. It's all about a bunch of revivals. It's a really good book. All right. All right. Y'all have a good evening.